Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. My first film was The Dirty Dozen. And I didn't know shit from toothpaste. If you've got these senses, fear, do you recognise these guys? They've fallen, jumped, crashed, punched, kicked, stabbed, swung and exploded their way through the last 60 years of cinema. It wasn't an ice-dump business like it is now. Taxi drivers, bouncers, barmen. I was working in a factory in North London. They might look like any bunch of old geezers, but they're pretty special. I could put my back against a friend and punch my way out of a room. They wanted someone to drive this E-Type quite quickly. Didn't mind getting bashed up or running around because that's what they was doing anyway. He said, do you want to do a stunt in a movie? So I said, yeah. Not knowing it was a stunt, man didn't know the word stuntman. It's like when I came out of the army, well, I went for job interviews and they said, what are you good at? And I go, well, I'm very good with a light machine gun. That's not really what we're looking for. That one there, he was in the yellow chance. He said, I've got this actor on this film. He's a dead ringer for you, you know. A few of them were Superman. I got into films like that where I was doubling main actors. Him? I'm doubling the arch villain. He was John Wayne. First time I did a stunt with him, he bollocked me. Pretty much all of them have been James Bond at some point or another. 007 is the holy grail of stunts. And some of them, well, they're still going. Why wouldn't you keep going? I mean, it's just... It's fun. The family pay for it. I miss the kids because I was travelling a lot. When it's too late, what do you do? A little bit of dignity in old age is good. Bang, and he kicks me in the nuts. I think the industry's changed an awful lot. I do think the characters have disappeared that were. They're the guys who made film exciting and they're ready to tell their story. You can't run away from fire. It's a lot of backstabbing. It's very incestuous business. It's a great life for me. You had to fend for yourself. It's cutthroat. If you got hurt badly, you were out and gone. Being responsible for that is not very nice. You know, that film ruined my life. 
think, why am I doing this? <laughs> Wish I could do it again. I wouldn't change any of it. I'll take some of your money, though. <laughs> Hollywood Bulldogs. The rise and falls of the great British stuntman. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking to John Spira, the director of Hollywood Bulldogs, The Rise and Falls of the Great British Stuntmen. Keep up with the film and all things John Spira over at John Spira, that's J-O-N-S-P-I-R-A dot C-O dot U-K. I hope you enjoy the interview. John Spira, tell me about how you got into the business. You know, it's been my whole life that I've been wanting to do this, like every other white middle-class boy who was born in between 1970 and 1980 it was you know i fell in love with star wars when i was when i was a little boy yeah there was a there was a book in my school library star wars annual and it had a little feature in it about the making of star wars and when i saw grown-up men playing with droids and playing with aliens i didn't understand why my father worked in a linen shop <laughs> you know I, it was it took me many years to understand why my father worked in a linen shop like why human beings have to have jobs but because at five years old, I had decided that I was going to make film. I was kind of I was on that path at five, and my parents were really supportive, really supportive of it. My dad, you know, as I've got older, I've realized that my dad subtly guided me towards this because he's a huge cineast. He, you know, he loves films, and his his whole retirement now is is he goes to London twice a week to sit in the BFI and to just watch old movies. So he loves this. So I, I think dad guided me towards it. He certainly supported me and, and kind of guided me in the films that I watched when I was little. He he has really great taste. I grew up as a kid saying, I'm going to be a film director, not knowing at all what it meant. But I just kind of did. You know, he gave me super eight cameras and I, and I played with those when I was small. They got me video cameras. I mean, I don't want to say we didn't have like loads of money, but you know, these things were around. And I went to film school. By the time I came out of film school, I thought I was going to be a screenwriter. That was That was really what I wanted to do. I got a job very quickly, very quickly. In fact, like the year after I graduated, I was I was in Canada on a TV show called Lex. I don't know if you've heard of Lex. Oh, I remember Lex. Yes. Yeah, people who have seen it remember it. <laughs> Lex is kind of a, a sci-fi comedy, softcore porn, very strange, but with lots of great ideas as well. And 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 it was a really interesting show to kind of cut my teeth on. So I was on the fourth season of that. I was I was part of the writing team and I wrote two standalone episodes as well, which was great. And, and, you know, you couldn't ask for a kind of, a kind of better kind of entry in, into the industry, but at the same time, uh, the industry that was literally nine 11 happened right after that. And I'd come back from Canada and was starting to sell ideas to TV companies. It looked like I was going to kind of go into kind of TV screenwriting and then everything just shut down here really after 9-11. They really, British TV moved moved towards reality TV in a really big way. I mean, it, it changed completely. And certainly it wasn't a place for new writers or for young writers. And I struggled a lot at that point. And actually what I did, I, I moved back to Oxford, which is where I was born. And I decided with my Lex money to open a video shop. I just, I'd always wanted to have a video shop. And I opened a video shop. I ended up having two video shops. And I kind of gave up on the industry. I'd, I'd, I'd learned in those few years that my temperament is not really well suited for the industry. It's, it's, it's very difficult. The way things are commissioned in TV and in film these days, there's a lot of middle management. There's a lot of kind of, there's a big executive level. And I 
I struggle with that. And the word development, you know, it used to be, certainly in this country, it used to be that you could almost walk in off the street and if you had an interesting idea, they would trust you. And if you didn't do a good job, you maybe didn't get a second chance. But now, certainly, I mean, this is going back almost 20 years now, but, but you know, it's, I've never done well with development. I've never done well in meetings. I've never done well kind of working with other people who, who are not creative as such. So I just kind of gave up on it. And I just, um, I just ran video shops for, for a few years, which was the most dreamlike, wonderful existence there is because video shops, you know, <laughs> and it was just spending all day. My staff were all kind of huge film geeks and the customers were all huge film geeks. And it was everything that you think it might be and everything. The reason why people of our generation wanted to work in video shops, you know, it was all true. You, you got to watch films the whole time for free. You got to talk to people about films the whole time. You got to see so many films that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's what I did. So, so I spent, I mean, that's probably eight years pretty much owning video shops, running video shops. I didn't have a kind of ambition at that point anymore, really to be making films. I made music videos for people and I did bits of work kind of naturally comes up sometimes. So I, I did bits of advertising and bits of kind of corporate work here and there, but it wasn't, there was no plan to it. And then I'd had this vague idea to make a documentary about the music scene in Oxford, which is a really interesting scene. And it's where Radiohead came from. It's where Supergrass, Ride, Foles, Swerve Driver, Tallulah Gosh, all of these really huge, not necessarily huge, but influential bands, bands who, who created genres of their own. They all came from this scene. And it was a genuine scene. It's not like, it's not like a lot of places where people talk about music scenes and there's kind of, a few bands for a couple of years. The Oxford music scene had been going for almost 30 years at that point, And it was almost like a boot camp for manufacturing bands with integrity. So I thought about doing a documentary about it. And then they suddenly announced that um, they were going to close the biggest venue in Oxford. And a lot of the guys who worked in my shop were in bands and stuff. And it was a, it was a huge thing. And the day they announced it, they, they firstly, they announced it was going to be not only closed down, but it was going to turn into a corporate venue, which is what happened to it. And, um, so that was huge because that, that's not the kind of thing that happens in Oxford. It's not, it's, it hasn't really been a corporatized town, corporatized town. But also they said that, um, on the last night, they were going to reunite all of these old Oxford bands sort of for one night only. And it was going to be this incredible night. So I knew I had to film that. And I filmed, I filmed that last night and it just turned into this huge project. And I spent four years basically interviewing everyone and I interviewed all the big bands I interviewed Radiohead, Supergrass, all of those bands but I also interviewed all of the small bands who had been huge in Oxford but their success hadn't kind of translated out and I got this idea that I was going to make this documentary which was going to be kind of nominally about the Oxford music scene but what it was really about was this idea that every music documentary that I'd ever seen and I love music documentaries that it, it, they peddle lies, they peddle this kind of lie that you get together with your friends and if you're good at music and you work hard, you'll make it, you know, and it's, and it's complete bullshit. And, and I, I'd spent my whole life being surrounded, having grown up in Oxford, being surrounded by these incredibly talented bands who didn't make it because it's not about luck. It's, I mean, it's not about talent, like talent gets you to a certain place, but it's about luck. So I, so I made that film and bizarrely the film just kind of just did really well. It, it got, it got its premiere at the BFI and, and it got a lot of press and a lot of people saw it and 
all of a sudden I was a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into the business. I've, I've never thought about documentary once before I made anyone can play guitar. And so here I am, a documentary filmmaker. Pretty remarkable to go from not making documentaries to making this thing that actually gets into the BFI that has really big names in it. I mean, it was amazing how many folks you actually got to talk to for that. There was a real honesty to the project and people appreciated that. And I and, and the way I did it was kind of in, in these kind of levels, basically. And, and, you know, you I was friends with a lot of people, so I could interview the bands who were on the scene at the time, and that was fine. But then as you moved up, and people saw that I was doing the project with integrity. And it was it was a weird project because, because I'd never made a documentary. I was making it in a very strange way, which is the way I actually still make films, which is that I was doing interviews that, that were kind of four, four or five hours long. I mean, some of these interviews went to kind of six hours. And I had cameramen passing out left, right, and center. <laughs> I'd always say to them, do you want a chair? And they'd be like, no. And I'd be like, you know, these interviews go long, no, I'm fine. And then they'd faint, you know, it still happens. On Hollywood Bulldogs, we lost the camera operators. I mean, it still happens. And I love working that way. And I actually, the more people who told me, I, I got taken aside by so many people saying, this is not how you make a documentary. The way you make a documentary is you work out the answers you want people to tell you, and you ask the questions to get the answers that you want. And I, that's just not interesting to me. Like, you know, it's, I, I like to go on a journey and the film presents itself at the end of it. The film is like a, a postcard from, from the journey that I've been on with the interviews. That's how I got access to the big people. And, you know, by the time I got to Radiohead, who, who, you know, who were pretty much the last interviewees, they, they were literally saying, we've been waiting for you to get in touch. You know, we felt like you weren't going to come and talk to us and you've talked to all of our friends. And it meant a lot. I know it meant a lot to the guys from Radiohead because, the bands that we covered were bands who had influenced them and helped them, helped give them a leg up. So the chance for them to, to kind of pay that back in the film, which is what they really do, was huge. And, and there was a moment when I was interviewing Ed from Radiohead where he literally said, listen, this was just luck. He said, look, we were doing the right music at the right time. Nirvana came along and changed everything. And they were doing these things with quiet verses and loud choruses. And that's what the record company were looking for. And that's what we happened to be doing. And that's how we got it, you know, and, and Radiohead's first album didn't do very well. They were close to getting dropped by their record label. And it was only because Creep got huge in, first of all, Israel and then America, that they even ended up kind of having a career. So when I got that on camera, I was like, this is the film I want to make. That's the, the key line to the whole film right there is Radiohead saying we got lucky. It was a lovely experience. It was, it was, it was the best way for me into a career. Because like I say, it also, not only did it turn out being exactly the film I wanted to make, but it showed me that although my methods are kind of unorthodox, they work for me and, and they turn into the films that I want to make. So now you're a big shot documentary filmmaker. You've got movie companies just throwing money at you, back up the dump truck and just pour it onto the front lawn. I mean, that's how documentary filmmakers live, correct? Oh, it's incredible. The money, the girls, it's just, it's stunning. Yeah, the benefits are, are, are brilliant. Yeah, no, it's not easy. It's really hard to make a living doing this. And quite honestly, you know, I'm 45 years old. This is the first film which I was paid for properly and I was paid for upfront Hollywood Bulldogs. And that was through some really good investment. We found we, there was an investment company who had seen our last film, who, who basically had faith in us. You know, I mean, I've been a professional filmmaker for years. It was the first time that going into a project, I didn't have to put any of my own money into it. 
and I, and it wasn't a risk for me personally. I mean, the last the last film we made before this, Austria 1976, we not only thought we were going to lose all of our money. There was a point where we thought we were going to go to prison because we really had put ourselves completely on the line by funding it ourselves. It's really difficult, and and even now, you know, Hollywood Bulldogs has, has had a measure of success already, which has been really nice. But even now, straight away, it came out in this country last week. And we're spending the time right now trying to capitalize on that and trying to raise the funding while we're still in the papers and we're still, there's still a bit of press about us. It's really difficult, but that's, um, it's not where you go into it. I used to, I used to teach at a nonprofit film workshop. And the first thing I'd try and do with people is disavow them of the notion that filmmaking is in any way glamorous. I mean, it is fun. Of course it's fun, but, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And, and I look at my graduating film school class and those people who are still actually working within the industry. And we're all, we're all still of an age. We're all still kind of mid forties. You know, everyone is basically struggling. There are people who specialize, you know, there are people who, who are directors of photography and, and camera operators and stuff and, and editors who, who have maybe a bit more security, but certainly anyone who tried, who tried to be a director or a producer or, or a writer is still fairly hand-to-mouth. After you make anyone can play guitar, are you still working at the video store and, and running that? Or are you able to then say, okay, this is going to be what I do full-time? It kind of got out there and it got a really good reputation. It got very good reviews. But it didn't get bought. We didn't sell it anywhere because no one knew who the hell I was. Like I, I made it by myself in Oxford. And it was almost like when we tried to sell this film, people were like, you couldn't have made a documentary with Radiohead in it. And I, you know, it really felt like that was kind of the response. I self-released that one, to be honest. Like I, I, I just went, we did a couple of theatrical tours. So we, we taught the country independent cinemas quite a lot. And then I put it out on DVD myself and, and sold it through the website. And, and, and that was that. And we still, it's, it's in a difficult position right now because um, I put a lot of music in it. And my producer, Hank, who I still work with, came on, towards the end of anyone to play guitar to kind of get the legal stuff sorted out. And there was so much music in it. He negotiated really well for the music rights, but the music rights only covered theatrical and DVD. So now if we want to do anything with it, if we want to get it onto, onto kind of streaming platforms or onto Blu-ray, I think we've got to raise at least kind of 30 to 50,000 pounds just to pay for all the music that's in it. We're hoping to do that at some point in the next couple of years, or we're hoping that maybe a company would come along and kind of go, it's worth putting some money in to get the film out there. Because it never quite got out there to the audience. Like for the people who know, like, and a lot of music fans know the film, but it didn't make it kind of dense cinematically. But to begin with, yes, I was straight back to the video shop, uh, which was fine. <laughs> and then the video shop closed down because video shops closed down and that's what happens. <laughs> and then what happened? was actually really interesting. I've got a friend who works for, who used to work in a video shop, who works for Arrow Video, you know, Arrow, which is like an amazing label. James, James Flower. Oh, I know James. Do you know James? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, he and I worked together on the uh, Over the Edge release that they just did. That was his personal, he's been trying to get that done forever. I can't wait to see that. I haven't seen that yet. So James is the best. And James used to work in my video shop. He was visiting his girlfriend who was studying in Oxford. And we had this big chat about films. And at the end of it, he said, I wish I could work in, in a place like this. And I said, look, if you move to Oxford, I'll make a job for you. So he moved to Oxford. And we worked together. And James is the best. James got married in the cinema. James is, is film geek through and through. 
he sent me an email one day and he said, you're not going to believe this, but your dream job has come up. And I was like, okay. And it literally, the, the, the job description was to go and work at the BFI, the British Film Institute, as their in-house documentary filmmaker. And it was like, the job is you make, you make films about films. And it was like, you come up with the ideas, you produce them, you film them yourself, and you, you put them on them. I couldn't believe it. So I applied for it. And it's the only job from the second I walked into the first interview, it's the only job I've ever gone. There's no one else who, who could do this. Like the experience of making anyone can play guitar in which I pretty much had to do, had to operate the camera, operate the sound, edit, produce, conduct the interviews, be a complete kind of one man band most of the time. It completely prepared me for it. And, and because of the FI had done the premiere of the film, when I went in for the interview, one of the people on the team said, Oh, I, I edited you doing a Q and A on stage a couple of months ago. So it just, it just felt like it was kind of set up for me. So, so then I, I worked from, from 2013 through to about 2017, full-time employment at the BFI, just making films about film. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And it was heavenly. It was just, it was the most, I mean, to work at the BFI is so special because you're surrounded by people who are just, film is running through their veins and everyone is there because they love film. And it just, it was just, oh, it's just like entering, you know, the, it was, it was Shangri-La or something, you know. And that was my job. My job every day was to go, you know, watch I make a film about who shall I interview. And for those kind of four years, I got to meet my heroes. I got to do one-on-one interviews with everyone. I mean, you know, Romero, Argento, Mel Brooks, all these, everyone. And, and, and when I wasn't doing that, I was creating documentaries and, you know, often to go along with the, with the programs that they were running. If there was a sci-fi program, you know, you'd go, okay, I want to go and interview. Well, who did I do for that? Billy D. Williams. I went and interviewed Jeff Wayne from all of the world, you know, and it was heaven. It was, it was the best. It was, it was such a wonderful time. And then being the kind of bureaucratic institution that it is, they then um, made my whole team redundant and decided that they didn't want to make videos anymore because why would the BFI want to communicate to people through moving image, you know. <laughs> but by then I, I had already started making Astro 1976. I was making that kind of in my spare time anyway. And that was pretty much finished. The BFI, although although the kind of bureaucracy was not particularly kind to me at the end of it, the people were and I did a lot of freelance work for the next couple of years, which tidied me over while we were doing Elstree and and, and yeah, by the time Elstree was done, I was pretty much okay going full-time making films. How did the Elstree project come about for you? It was before I even made Anyone Can Play Guitar. 
I was teaching in this in this nonprofit film workshop in Oxford. And I was teaching screenwriting, and there was this one student, this kind of older guy, who was funny and fun. And at the end of one of the classes, he goes, uh, "Hey, John, do you like do you like Star Wars?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course I like Star Wars." You know, sure. And he goes, "Yeah, I was in it." I was like, "You were in Star Wars?" Yeah, yeah, I was in Star Wars. What do you mean you were in Star Wars? Like, you know, and you know. I don't particularly identify myself as like a Star Wars fan. I'm like a film fan. But if you like films, you know Star Wars inside out. They're just going to come to territory. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is. I don't recognize him at all. And he goes, yeah, yeah, come out to my car. Come out to my car. And I went to his car and he opened the, the boot. It was full of boxes of 8 by 10 photos because he did all the conventions, you know. And it was pictures of him in Star Wars. And he was in the X-Wing pilot's kind of uniform. And this one shot he had, which was amazing, was a photo of the briefing room scene from, from Star Wars. And it's got everyone in there. It's like Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, all everyone's in the back. And he is at the front of this photo. He is the most visible person in this photo. I'm like, this is incredible, but I don't remember this shot. And I went home that night and I stuck Star Wars on. And it's the reverse angle of the shot that's in the film. So, so in the film, you can see the back of his head in one shot. And that's it. And I went back to him the next week and I was like, oh, I, I think I saw you. And he's like, yeah, back of my head, right? Back of my head. And I was like, I was like, you go to the conventions? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was fascinating guy. We've made friends because we all used to go and drink after, after the classes. And I said to him one time, can I come to a convention with you? And he's like, of course you can. Of course you can. I've been to conventions anyway. Like I knew what conventions were like, but experiencing the convention through his eyes was fascinating because he's, the ultimate kind of bottom rung of the of the ladder, okay? He's not an actor. He's not named in the film. But he is undeniably in the film, and he has this photo that proves he's in the film. And he was on set, which is which means something to a lot of people. You know, even, even if he's not famous, he was on the set of Star Wars for, for a couple of weeks. That's something. And the experience of sitting with him at this convention was just fascinating because it was like a roller coaster. It was people either completely ignored him or just looked at him and literally like, oh, God, he's just an extra. Why is he selling his autograph? And you could feel that in him when they stared at him and when they dismissed him. Or they were coming up to go, oh, my God, you were in Star Wars. Or you're one of the missing people. You know, I've got all the other X-Wing pilots. I haven't got your thing. And watching him go from it, watching him swing wildly between, between kind of elation and real depression, I knew there was something there. And he stayed a friend. He's still a friend, but he stayed a friend for, for, for a long time. And when we finished um, making Anyone Can Play Guitar, we started making another film, another documentary about comedians in the north of England. And that kind of, it crashed and burned. We did a lot of interviews, but it, we never got to where we wanted to get with the project. But we had this fantastic shooting crew. And my producer just said, let's do that Star Wars thing. Let's do, let's just get that going. So what we said was, we set this remit, which was, for any interviewees, they had to have been in the first style, just in the first Star Wars film, and they had to have had their face obscured. So they either had to have been wearing a mask or a helmet, but the rule was that they were definitely in there, but you couldn't see their face in there. And those are the people I wanted to interview. That was like very narrow focus. And Hank, my producer, I also said, Hank, the best stories that I got in Anyone Can Play Guitar were the stuff that I hadn't researched. So I said to Hank, I don't want to do any research on this film at all. I don't want to know who these people are when I sit down with them. I want to find out as the audience finds out. I want to get to know them as the interview goes on. So he just went out there and he just found, I mean, it ended up being kind of 10 people 
who fit that remit, who had been in Star Wars, but had their faces covered, obscured. And it was really interesting because in that 10, you had some people who were very well-trained actors who were kind of essentially kind of slumming it in Star Wars. You had literally people walking in off the streets uh, who were just extras. You had people who were professional extras, which is a whole thing I didn't even kind of know about. You know, I, I went backwards and forth a bit about having Dave Prowse in there, who was Darth Vader. But I actually decided, you know what? He has his face obscured through the whole movie. So let's do it. Let's kind of, let's, let's, let's see what he's got to say. And he ended up being a fascinating interview because he, God rest his soul, was crazy. It was just great. And it, and it really kind of, you know, the project built itself from there. We, we extended the remit very slightly because we'd met Jeremy Bullock, who played Boba Fett at a convention. And he was such an interesting person. I just wanted to interview him. So he's in the film as kind of an outsider. I don't really necessarily count him as one of the main interviewees. We bring him in at the very end, in fact, just in the last act, because he just talks about the conventions because he was the biggest guy on the convention circuit. And the film's about that. It's about the whole point of the film is it's about people who lived in the shadow of this pop culture, just juggernauts and how it would affect their lives. And this idea that you look at, People breaks people are so obsessed with Star Wars they break it down into into to the point to the atomic level. So to the point where they are interested in someone who was an extra in one shot, you know. And I wanted to not necessarily make a comment about that, but certainly ask questions about that. Like, you know, is it healthy, this level of obsession with, with this one thing? Is that healthy? And through these people's stories, there's a whole range of, of answers to that. But one of the answers to that is no. And, and to some of these people, having been in Star Wars for, for such a small contribution has been very negative to their lives because there's a group of people out there who are putting them on pedestals and pretending they are more than they're not. But then when they're not in, in the light, in the convention zone, they can slip into real depression because, because no one gives a shit about them after that, you know. And the one thing that people seem to give them huge kudos for is something that they didn't, even at the time, they didn't think Star Wars was going to be big. And there's almost a guilt about that. I mean, I, I felt that like possibly with the exception of Dave Browse, all of them had a measure of guilt about the amount of time and, and energy of their lives and how much money they made from something which they were so tangential to. And they kind of knew that. So that was, you know, it was, it was exploring, it was exploring what it meant to a life to be in the shadow of that. But it was also exploring, you know, how healthy it is, the modern kind of pop culture obsession. So it was, it was a really meaty project. And, and I just, I loved it. It was such a great film to make. Did that help lead to Hollywood Bulldogs? Yeah, it led very directly to very directly to Hollywood Bulldogs because um, it made a lot of people a lot of money. Didn't make us a lot of money. <laughs> we paid for it. It didn't make us a lot of money, but it, it sold well around the world. That's how the film industry works. It, it doesn't necessarily matter if you make good films or if you make bad films, but if you make someone some money, then they will come back to you because you made them some money and they'd like to make some more money. So the company that handled the international sales for, for Elstree were basically very receptive to working with us again. And they were very excited about the idea of, of a sequel. I was slightly less excited <laughs> because, well, for a few reasons, it, I'd said everything I'd wanted to say about pop film and Star Wars and pop culture in, in that film anyway, I thought. Also, the reception that Elsie got was a very strange mixed reception. And it was a very hard thing to experience because it was the first film I'd had where basically, you know, strangers are 
tagging me on Twitter and telling me that I'm a terrible filmmaker. I've never had that experience before. And Star Wars fans, are, they're a trip. They're a bunch of people. And what had happened, I don't blame the Star Wars fans for this. I maybe I'm very wary about being around Star Wars fans anymore. But what had happened was the film had been heavily um, marketed as a Star Wars documentary. And very lazy journalism, of which there is a lot, had basically said, if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll love this. I've been told off by our sales agent for saying in interviews that it's not a film, it's not about Star Wars, the film's not about Star Wars at all, it's about the people, it's about life. You know, what happened was that the people who the film was made for, and it's quite a meditative film, it's not a particularly mainstream documentary, it's, it's quite slow and there's a lot of space in it. Not the right kind of space, it turns out. <laughs> um, you know, the people who I made the film for didn't go and see it because it looked like a cheap Star Wars fan documentary from the marketing. And the Star Wars fans went and saw it and there wasn't very much Star Wars in it. And and, and they hated it. And these days, it's hard to separate the professional film geek journalism from the kind of amateur or from the bedroom. And there's a lot of noise on social media. A lot of Star Wars fans who probably weren't used to watching the kind of documentaries that I'm inspired by, They'd seen it and they just hated it. They hated it. They said it was the most boring film they'd ever seen. They were like, 10 minutes of this film is worth watching and that's it. There's, you know, which is, there's about a 20 minute chunk where they're actually talking about their experiences on set in Star Wars. And they were like, that bit was amazing. I heard stories I'd never heard. And the rest is just dog shit. That was upsetting and really frustrating. I mean, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, it's bizarre because it's one of those things where we get the pre- the, the critics really liked it and the public kind of hated it. It was, you know, it is what it is. Well, that's because you paid off all the critics, right? <laughs> exactly. It was really heartening. That that made it, Bill Jabiri wrote a really nice piece about it where he called it the Rosencrantz and Gilderstern of science fiction, you know. And so we got these, and it was the, the New York Post, no, New York Times, made it the critics pick of the week. Like we got, it was enough to, to keep my soul intact that I felt that people who understood film and liked film could see at least what I was trying to do. Even if it wasn't perfect, they could see why I did it. But I certainly wasn't in the mood to make Elstree 1979 at that point. But the company came up with a 500,000 pound budget. It was a half million pound budget to make a sequel. And as I've said before, the, you know, hand to mouth existence making films and me and my producer, we didn't really have a choice. We we're like, well, we let's do this because, you know, I just had a baby daughter and, you know, the idea of actually being able to keep her in a house was <laughs> amazing. So we went full steam ahead and what we decided to do, I mean, I was having a breakdown about making a sequel, but what my producer, actually, Hank, actually said was he said, look, you make a connection to Star Wars, but you make the film you want to make. And he reminded me, when I was working at the BFI, I had done an interview with Vic Armstrong, the stuntman. And what that was about was we were doing a season at the BFI of Buster Keaton films. And I thought it'd be really great. Everyone talks about his comedy. And people always say, oh, his stunts are amazing. But I'd never seen something where a stunt performer or coordinator talked technically about the stunts. So I got in touch with Vic. The best thing about working at the BFI is that anyone will let you interview them. As soon as you leave the BFI, it's very hard to get interviews with people. But the second, when you're at the BFI, you just find up and say, I'm with the BFI, you know, I'm with the BFI. And they say, yes, come to my house. Because, you know, it's the BFI. So Vic had been very welcoming and had said, come to my house. And by the way, if you're a film friend, you do not want to go to Vic Armstrong's house because 
It's a very hard place to concentrate. <laughs> you're literally going, yeah, is that Indiana Jones's hat? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to try it on? <laughs> is that James Bond's fourth of PPK? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that an actual original Superman outfit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I use. <laughs> so you're kind of like, he's got this office and lit the walls are just lined with signed photos everyone he's worked with and every piece of memorabilia you could dream of. It's hard to concentrate on the interview with him, but Vic is brilliant, really nice man, and he's really passionate as well. He's really passionate about stunts. And we were going through Buster Keaton's stunt work, and he was just going like, we still don't know how he did some of these things. Like, he was so good, we still don't know. With all the technology we have now, we still don't know how he did a lot of these things. And there was one stunt in particular, which I hadn't even ever noticed as a stunt. It was like a gag. Can't remember which one it's in, but it's the one where he's being chased by all the police. You know, do you remember the one like like thousands of police? I think seven chances, maybe. Yeah, I think it's seven chances. There's one where they're he's across the street and they're all running down an alley towards him. The van goes past, he holds onto it, and he just gets pulled off camera. And Vic said that's physically impossible. He said if a van's going fast enough to pull you horizontal, it would just pull your arm out of the socket. You couldn't hold onto it like that. He said it's physically impossible to jump up and stay horizontal for that period of time to leave frame. And he said there was no wire work there. And he's like, I don't know how he did it. And, and Vic's brother, Andy, is, is also a big stunt arranger in the States. And he said both of them, that's their, their big, the thing they would most like to know ever is how Buster did that one stunt. It was a wonderful time with Vic. And I made the film and the film performed really well online. Vic stayed in touch and he would send me, like, he sent me an email a couple of months later and Andy had been arranging on The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and they had tried to recreate it. I think it's in the film. I think they recreate it in the film. And he'd kind of found a way to do it because, you know, with those Spider-Man films, they were trying to do as little CGI as possible with the stunts. They were actually doing a lot of the kind of web swimming, swinging and stuff. And they tried to do it and, and he said that he'd found a way slowing down the speed of the traffic that was passing in the other direction or something and like an optical effect almost it stuck in my mind that firstly Vic was a fascinating person and secondly that stunt performing and stunt coordinating is one area of filmmaking which is just not talked about it's just not explored the thing that Vic told me on that day which has stuck with me ever since is that there is no Oscar and there is no BAFTA for anything to do with stunts. And when you start talking to stunt coordinators and stunt performers about what they do and how they do it, and there's a, there's an Oscar for best sound editing, there's an Oscar for hair and makeup, like these things are, you know, are crafts in themselves. But the idea that there is no Oscar or BAFTA for stunt work, and because they're so good, they're the last area almost of magic in filmmaking, because so much special effects has gone to CGI in a big way now, you know. Stunt work in films is still at that point where it's so good that if you're enjoying the film, you never stop and think about it. It's just part of it. And it's also why a lot of people go to see a lot of films. You're talking about films like The Fast and the Furious. Can you imagine what those would be like without the stunt performers, without the stunt coordinators? There's nothing left. And yet these people are not recognised and they're kept as a secret within the industry in a big way. The only, the only discussion about stunts and in, in the modern world is every time Tom Cruise does a Mission Impossible film and they're never talking about the people who are arranging those stunts for him and they're never talking about the people who are doing the other stunts around him and I just went you know what my last two films have been about 
communities of people who exist just outside the spotlight. And that's the hook. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to do LC1979. And the way we'll connect it to Star Wars is we'll say that all of the people we interviewed had to have been in The Empire Strikes Back. Okay, so the first one was Star Wars next, and film extras. The next one will be Empire Strikes Back and, and stunt performers. So we were really excited about this at this point, and we knew that Vic had been on Empire Strikes Back and a bunch of the other big performers and smaller performers. And we also knew that there were certain stories of stunt performers who had been on that film who had had kind of tragedy and stuff. So, so we were confident going into it that it would be interesting. Because we had a wonderful big budget, we booked LG Studios for a week, and we hired set designers, and we were ready to recreate the sets of Empire Strikes Back where they had originally been built. We hired a stunt team, and we were going to do for the recreation sections, we were going to recreate the stunts from Empire Strikes Back, but from a behind-the-scenes kind of point of view. Because in LG 76, we did a lot of recreation footage of the making of Star Wars, which a lot of people still think is from is behind the scenes footage from Star Wars. It's not. We went and shot all of it ourselves. So we were going to carry that on. And then two days before we started shooting, the sales agents went bust. The production company went completely bust. They'd stopped they'd stopped taking our calls for about three weeks. So we knew we knew we were in trouble already. Luckily Elstra Studios are very kind and charge us for the time that we didn't use. But again, it was me and Hank saying, well, we've got a crew and we've got some, we've got some great interviews booked. So we'll just pay for it ourselves. So the small bit of money that we made from LG 1976 <laughs> went straight back into the shoots of, of Hollywood Bulldogs and we shot. So, so we were back to very indie territory and we had to scale back our ambition in terms of, in terms of the visual side of it. But we had a wonderful crew and we went and got those interviews. Yeah, that's how we set it up. The stories are just fascinating. I can't even imagine sitting down and just talking with these guys for hours. And, and... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Trying to cull down their stories into just the nuggets that you have inside of Hollywood Bulldogs. There's a lot more stories as well. I mean, we're, we're, we're working with the guy who's going to do the British Blu-ray, like special edition Blu-ray at the moment. And that's going to be great for film fans because that's where all the anecdotes are. One of the things that you learn when you're actually making these documentaries is not to get distracted by the anecdotes because although they're great as a film fan, they're brilliant. They don't necessarily, if you're trying to make a documentary that says something or looks at something, you can only fit a couple of long form anecdotes really in there and they have to be meaningful to what you're looking at at that time. So really with Bulldogs, it's um, the longer anecdotes are the ones about the kind of things that went wrong later on in the film. I tend to interview people who have either been interviewed a lot or have never been interviewed before. 
And all of those, I prefer people who have never been interviewed before because they kind of come to it. They don't hit autopilot. And with the stunt guys, they have been interviewed for, you know, over the years quite a lot. So they have their, their set stories. And part of interviewing people who are in that position is spending a couple of hours listening to those stories and getting those stories out of the way. And once they've got to that point where they feel they're looking at you like, what do you want from me? I've just told you all of my stories. That's actually when you get to the, to, to the goal. That's when they open up personally and, 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 and you get something on a very, very different level. So yeah, it was great to, to kind of hear those stories and those, and a lot, like I say, those stories will crop up on the Blu-ray. But for me, what was great was, was that moment after the story is told where you know that for the next hour or so, you've got stuff that you're actually going to use in the film, which is them talking personally. My mantra when I go into these films is feelings, not facts. I'm just not interested in facts particularly. And stories are great, especially if they tell it from a personal point of view. But you want to know how people feel. That's, that's, that's when, when documentary is really interesting, is when you get people actually kind of emoting. There's a big question when you're interviewing stuntmen, and we tried to get women, and we couldn't get any of, of the female stunt performers from that time. They just wouldn't do it. We talked to them, and they, just, they didn't want to go on camera. But when you're dealing with kind of tough old men, you don't know if you're necessarily going to get to, to the emotions and whether you're necessarily going to get an interview which, which, where they're prepared to be vulnerable. And they were. They all went there. They all went to that point with me at some point. And that's been the gratifying thing about the reviews that have been coming out about Bulldogs in the last week since, since the British public have been able to see it is that people understand that the film, the film actually moves in that way. You get the fun stuff at the beginning. You get the, you get the anecdotes and you get the what a crazy life it was. But by the time you get into the third act, you, they're in a much more reflective mood and you get to see a bit more of who they are and you get to see. I mean, certainly I, I was, I was very moved. The interesting thing about the way I shoot is, is I shoot with two cameras and I mean, that's not that a lot of people shoot with two cameras, but, um, I shoot a mid shot, but my close ups are very close to the point where if I'm working with a new camera operator, they always go, do you really want to go this close? <laughs> and I do because I'm a big believer that when you're working with cinema and I, and my films are meant to be shown in cinemas, I shoot them to be seen in cinema. They're not meant to be, they're definitely not meant to be seen on phones and iPads and stuff. When you see someone's face up close, it doesn't matter what they're saying. Sometimes you get a, a contradictory narrative to what they're saying. And that's why I shoot that close. And, and the audience gets that. The audience understands that if you spend enough, if you actually concentrate and you look at their faces, that something else is happening. And in Bulldogs, I really feel that we got there in the third act where there, there are moments with, with Vic Armstrong where he's talking about, um, about the fact that his family, you know, that, that, that he had this great career, but the cost of that was that his family, he didn't get to spend the time with his family or that his family kind of suffered in, but their lifestyle was much more kind of nomadic. And when you're that close in with the camera, you see it and you see the vulnerability and you see the honesty in people. And I, I, to get that out of, out of nominally a bunch of hard old tough pieces was really lovely. Like, like to, to get them, to get that kind of human emotion and the connection and the audience definitely connects to that. And yeah, that was, that was my favorite thing. <laughs> Well, it is really nice to see their faces, especially since so much of their job is to cover their faces and to land with your arm over your head so nobody sees who you actually are. You know, the hardest part of making this film was the research, was that they would remember that they were on films, but they couldn't remember. I mean, they, they were working constantly for 30 years, and some of them still are. 
And sometimes they never even saw the films that they made, you know. So when you're going, is that you in that stunt? They're like, it could be. There's a good chance it's me, you know. <laughs> There's so much of going frame by frame and going, is that him? Like, I think that's him and IMDb says it's him. And then there are other instances. There was one of the funniest things about making the film was well, I think five of them all claim to have done the same stunt. They all told me the same anecdote. And it's just like, I was like, well, which one of them actually did it? You know, so they don't remember. It's all just stories to them, you know. So it was actually, like you say, because they cover their faces in the shots, and the whole point is that you don't see them actually doing research and going, well, which bloody stunt is that? Like, they they were definitely in the film. Which one is it? And you phone them up and they're like, I think I got shot. I think I fell over. There were loads of people are getting shot. And then there were glorious moments where you actually saw that. I mean, especially in like the Bond films when, you know, they were just henchmen, you know, when you actually saw their face doing a stunt and you're like, brilliant, that's going in the film. <laughs> that's definitely him. Definitely in a James Bond film, definitely doing stuff. So yeah, that was, um, it was a, it was a double edged sword. The fact that they had to cover their faces. Well, there was one moment in the film from, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it's uh, the motorcycle chase, and you're like, "Oh yeah, this is the stunt man." I'm like, "That can't be the stunt man. That's Harrison Ford driving that for sure." But it's like that's just amazing. That one, it was Harrison Ford, but Rocky was the was Sean Connery. Oh my god, it, it looks like Sean Connery. <laughs> that's what Spielberg basically spilled when he got on set because he Rocky for a few years just professionally doubled Sean Connery not just in stunts, but in everything. It was just his professional double. Because for a few years, he looked just like him. And Spielberg just went, I can shoot you without even having to pretend. And there are scenes, if you look in the scene, it's not even a stunt. The scene where the room's on fire, and the fireplace keeps turning around. If Connery's not talking, it's just Rocky. And if you know what to look for, it's Rocky. And the thing that's funny is, like, Rocky's a pretty overweight guy. <laughs> like he's, he's actually a lot bigger than Sean Corey. But he looked like him, and he's in all those shots. And yeah, that shot, when the, 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 the motorbike thing, he's front and centre. He's right there. And you're just like, Jesus, it's clearly Rocky. But he looks so much like Connery, no one ever questioned it. He did a lot of Highlander 2. Because for Highlander 2, I think they only had Sean Connery for, like, a day. Pretty much, if it's not a close-up of Sean Connery talking, it's Rocky. <laughs> you know? You talked about that moment that, for lack of a better term, that gift when radio said, we were lucky, we got lucky. Was there a moment like that for you in Hollywood Bulldogs? Like I said, my big concern was that I was going to end up making, a, I mean, I made an effort to make this more mainstream than LSU 1976 because I could see that there was an audience who wanted to like LSU 1976 who hadn't. So I felt like, okay, I need to make an effort to actually give them more of what they want and be less kind of selfish about what I'm trying to do in that way. So I knew that it was going to, it was going to be a more, a more mainstream thing, but I was very, I really wanted the emotion in there. I really wanted it to be, to have something to say and that people who weren't necessarily kind of film fans could watch it and just go, this is a good human story. So all of those moments kind of came with that. Certainly when Rocky talked about what Michael Winner had done to him on Death Wish 3, which, and, and it was such a huge story as well. I mean, like, as he was saying it, I was kind of like, I know this is going to be the final act of the film. Like, I, this is this is so huge because it wasn't just talking about a stunt that went wrong. It was talking about the fact that to be a stunt performer, you are you have to trust a lot of people, and if those people are not reputable people, 
or don't have your best interests at heart like they should, then you're going to be in trouble. And Michael Winner, I knew from working with, within the BFI and knowing people who know about film, I knew that Michael Winner was, was no good. I knew that he was not a nice person. I didn't know to what degree. And Rocky was one of the first people we interviewed. And every single person we interviewed afterwards, I made a point of saying, tell me about Michael Winner. And they all had a different story. They all had a different story about him being a bully or remiss or dangerous, but none like Rocky's. I mean, Winner could have killed him and he didn't care. He didn't care. The only thing he cared about was whether he would get sued or not. I knew that I wanted to put that in the film. And I knew that to a degree, people would talk about that and that it was quite a contentious thing to do, especially in the UK where Michael Winner is... By the, by the time he died, he'd taken on kind of this grandfatherly role over here. He was on TV adverts for insurance going, calm down, dear, or whatever. So people kind of found him quite cute and endearing. And when he died, there was kind of an outpouring of kind of like, you know, this lovely kind of fun kind of guy who did reality TV shows where he went and ate. He'd become like, by that time in his life, he wasn't making films and he was like a restaurant critic. And so he was famous for that. And he, he, like I say, he had become likable and a likable figure. And when I found that piece of interview footage where he literally laughed at a woman who had been raped, I was like, I want to nail this guy to the wall. I really want to just put it all out there. And, and, and I know there's something about speaking ill of the dead, but, but he was not a nice man and people in the industry know it. And I, I thought, you know, this story is, it's time to kind of tell that story. So that was a big thing for me. I mean, First of all, Rocky telling the story. Secondly, finding the interview where he literally laughed at a woman and made a joke out of her having been raped. I mean, that you can find that full interview on YouTube, and it's a shocking thing to watch. I mean, it's it's that's the lowest point for him. But he spends a lot of time defend. I mean, literally, the interviewer says to him at one point, "How can you defend having a four minute rape scene in what's supposed to be an action fun, you know, kind of action film?" And Winner's response is, well, it's more like three minutes. And he's disgusting. When you watch those films, when you watch other things he made, what he did to women on his film sets is inexcusable. Even then, it's not even one of the things of it was of its time. Other filmmakers were not doing what he was doing. He had a lot of power and he used it in a horrible way. He was not a nice human being. So that was big. And the other one was also Greg Powell, who I found to be a very stoic interviewee. Greg, out of all of them, is probably the kind of like the most kind of geezery <laughs> British term, but the most kind of man's man kind of guys. And I knew that he'd been the stunt coordinator when the terrible accident had happened on Harry Potter, which had which had, had actually put Daniel Radcliffe's main stunt double into a wheelchair for the rest of his life. You know, he was he was paralyzed on that film. And I was very nervous about bringing that up with Greg. I was worried that it would be one where he would just walk out of the interview kind of thing. I would have brought it up by the end of the interview, but he brought it up himself. And we were at a good enough point in the interview where I could kind of go, and how did that feel? Like not poke too much. But I think in the film, that's one of the most kind of um, the moments where you, you, you kind of well up a little bit because to see Greg talk so eloquently, he, he gets very emotional. He says, you know, you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. You wouldn't wish this kind of thing on your worst enemy. And to be the person who is officially responsible for that is, you know, and he says in the film, it took him a few months to kind of go over that. And I know that him and David Holmes have a really good relationship now. Like they're still friends. They still see each other all the time and talk all the time. 
and you know David doesn't hold him responsible. Like he knows that that's part of stunt work. It's that's part of your job. Is it might just go wrong? Something might happen. It's very sad that happened. I know that affected Greg very deeply. But to get him on camera, opening up about it was was huge, and I think that's a huge moment in the film as well. So that was that was my Radiohead moment probably for that film. It was genius to have Ray Winstone narrate the film because he's got that gravitas and that geezer quality that you're talking about. How did that come about? I, you say it's genius, but the truth is it's obvious. <laughs> I hadn't had a narrator on, on LSU nineteen seventy six because I didn't want to make that kind of film. But I have had a narrator on it, anyone can play guitar. I've got Stuart Lee, who is a big cult comedian in this country, who is huge on music and had been in Oxford, studying in Oxford while this was all going on. So he knew, he knew the thing. Me and Hank talked for a while about whether we were going to have a narrator or not. My natural instincts actually would probably have said, let's not do it. Let's just let the story tell itself. But actually, I thought, if we're going to make this more accessible to people, People like a narrator, and, and sometimes it's good to just keep everything on track with narration and make it a bit easier for people. So I said, you know, I'm open to it. And Hank was like, okay, write a list of three people, and I'll write a list of three people, and we'll see where we get to. And I literally just went, I just want Ray Winston. Like, it's, it's obvious. You just want Ray Winston. And I knew that Ray was good friends with Rocky because Ray had written the foreword in Rocky's autobiography. And when me and Hank met again, I said, I haven't got three people. I've only got Ray Winston. He said, I've only got Ray Winston too. <laughs> so he tried to get in touch with Ray and Ray was away. And there was, it took a while to kind of hear back from his camp. And in that time, we were worried that the deadline was kind of looming. So the only other person we considered was Michael Caine. And I was very actually relieved when he said no. The, the ideal one, apart from Ray, would have actually been Roger Moore because all of those guys knew Roger and loved him. And Roger was all about stunt performance. He loved them so much. He, The day he found out that he, I mean, this will be on the Blu-ray, but the day he found out that he got the job as, as 007, he bumped into Rocky, right? He came out of the meeting, bumped into Rocky, covering the other stunt front, might have Mark Boyle. And that he that's who he celebrated with. They went and got, they went and got champagne and, and just danced around for the rest of the day, you know? So he was like their best friend. And, and if they, if it was anyone else, it would have been much more, you know? Uh, but like you say, it's got to be Ray Winston. Like he's got the voice and, and he was wonderful and he was so great. And, you know, we had to record that during lockdown. So like we had to have him in the studio and I had to do it from, from as you can see from my bedroom, I had to direct him over like Zoom to kind of do it. And he was brilliant. And he was so funny and he was so professional and so, it was just a lovely experience and he did such a great job. You talked about having to do part of this during lockdown. How else did lockdown affect the film? When we ran out of budget, when, when, when we went and filmed it, we actually didn't really know what we were going to do with it because it, we didn't have the funding to finish the film. It's expensive. I mean, you, you talk about kind of indie films, but it's, and yeah, there is so much you can do where you shoot a film and you can get an edit done, but you can't release a film when it's just a first cut from, from premiere, you have to have a professional sound mix. You have to have a professional color grade, you know, all these things. And then it has to go through all of the legal channels. There's, I got into it naively when I made anyone to play guitar and naivety serves, can serve you very well because naivety can get you a long way where if you knew the reality, you might just dig your heels in and go, I'm not going to make this film because I can't do those things. So I think naivety is very important to, to, and a belief in yourself to, to, to get to a certain point. But we knew that 
we couldn't finish the film unless we had some investment. And um, and then I had let me get this timeline straight. We shot yeah, we shot it that summer, and then my wife got pregnant, and we had our first daughter on the way. And I had always said that when we had a child, I wanted to be a stay-at-home father, and because my wife, yeah, well, first that's what I wanted, that's what my wife wanted, and she had a good job, a steady job. So I then took 18 months off filmmaking pretty much completely just to bring my daughter up, just to be, just to be a father, which was very difficult, but obviously it's difficult. Pyramid. Um, but one thing that was difficult was that I, I genuinely thought that I wouldn't miss making films. I genuinely thought, especially Elstree had been so, the, the, the end of Elstree just before it got released, we had nightmares. The people were trying to steal the film from us. People were trying to sue us while they were stealing the film from us. We, we were so naive legally. We made, we made a couple of mistakes, which put us in this position where, where the industry, you see how cruel the industry is and you see how they operate. So we were very close to losing the film completely and actually being sued, not just losing the film, being sued by the people who were stealing the film from us. It was an incredible state of affairs. And at that point, I was actually kind of like, you know, I don't really want to, I wasn't that enamored with the film industry. And the idea of actually spending a year and a half with a, with a baby was way more attractive to me. And it was great. And we had a lovely time. But turned out I did still want to kind of make films. That first year and a half with a kid, you can't do anything. So I did a few things. I did, I did stuff for Arrow and I did stuff for Eureka for Master Cinema. I, I, I did a lot of video essays, which I really enjoyed as kind of, pro, as kind of little projects. And, and I did a Arrow put out silent running maybe a year ago. And I did a video essay on that where I got to get the guys from Elstree 1976, like the, the American guys to do the, the voiceovers for it. Like we recreated part of the original script, the first draft of silent running. So I got to do some fun kind of little jobs as it went along, but I was always kind of aching to make another feature because that's what I love doing. And then what happened was, was Hank, had a meeting with the head of this investment company called Red Rock. And they basically said, you know, they'd seen the reel that we made for Bulldogs and they, they kind of said, we'll fund the post-production completely. You know, we'll just, we'll do that and we'll pay you. They paid us as well. So it was great. But the thing that was weird was it was the first film I've ever edited completely by myself. Like I've, I've always been an editor, but for anyone can play guitar on Fresh in 1976, on anyone can play guitar, I had one other editor who I worked with. Oh no, two. I had two other editors who I worked with at different points. And after nineteen six, there were actually kind of there were four editors by the end of it who who had been on it. And the main one, Krista Kaczynski, we worked really closely. You know, she she did the physical cut. I I, I always do a first cut, and that's why I pre- want to bring people in. And, and refine it. And, and I'm not a great technical editor. I can, I can, I can do a great first cut of a film. I know how to structure something, but I'm not great at finessing things. But me and Cresta particularly worked really closely, uh, on Elstree 1976 and thematically, like she really informed a lot of the kind of, the, the, the kind of themes that we had running through that. And there's another editor, John Twycross, who was the main editor on anyone, on a, anyone can play guitar who also finished up. Elstree 1976, who's a great visual editor. He's really good at making things kind of snappier and kind of more, more just kind of aesthetic. This was the first film where, where I couldn't work with anybody at all. And it was a bit lonely, I would say, 
Uh, but it was really good for me. It was really good to kind of be able to get in that zone and, and kind of, again, it was difficult not being in the edit suite. It was difficult. My wife was on lockdown, so she was working downstairs. And, you know, we live in an old cottage where the floors are kind of that thin and they're, they're, you could hear everything. So she was on Zoom meetings all day and I was trying to edit all day. And we were having a kind of, and I don't like anything with headphones on. So, you know, <laughs> it's a little backward and forward and we had a two and a half, two year old running around. But so lockdown definitely, it was, it made it harder in the sense I prefer to collaborate, but it also made it really good for me because actually I did this one entirely by myself. Like I edited this completely by myself. Um, apart from the, you know, the animated sequences and the title sequence, you know, where, where you get people who are good at after effects in, it was completely by myself. And, and, and it's actually given me a lot of confidence because, because people in reviews have been talking about the editing of it and stuff. And, and it's, and it's, I think I still in the future would prefer to collaborate because if there's someone who, 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 whose mind you like, it's really nice working with them and kind of, you know, it's, it's fun as well. I mean, you know, it's one of the fun things about making films is, is working with people that you love working with. And I'm very lucky to have a crew of people. I mean, some of the people who, 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 who I work with, I mean, certainly the camera department on Hollywood Bulldogs, I went to film school with them, you know, 20 something years ago. So it's lovely kind of, you know, part of the fun of filmmaking is, is for me is, is just being with my friends. I wouldn't weirdly, if someone kind of came along with an offer of money, if someone came along again with like half a million and said, make a documentary, but you know, you're working with, we're giving you the crew. And I, I wouldn't be interested. Like Hank, my producer, who is so, such a big part of this. Like, you know, the conversations, everything in my films comes out of conversations with Hank and Hank is 50% down the line. It's 50, 50 me and Hank. And when we come to this point of the film, I'll always be the one who either gets the credit or the blame for it. You know, I'll always be the kind of people will always make the direct to the public face. People don't really understand what producers do. But Hank is a very hands-on producer and there is nothing, I would never not run something past Hank. You know, it was, it's, and he's creative. I mean, Hank is a writer and a poet. He used to be in a band who were fantastic in this country and he's a really creative soul. So, so I, you know, I depend on him completely and I will always say it's 50-50. These films are me and Hank, even if my film, my name is the one that goes on there bigger. Uh, so, that's why I do these things. So I would never, I would never want to make, I don't think I'd ever want to make a film without Hank, to be honest, but certainly like, you know, same with our crew, that the fun of this stuff is, is working with people who you really enjoy spending time with, who you know are really good at their jobs. And these guys are just, you know, wonderful. So yeah, bit lonely, bit lonely. I, I really, I, I certainly missed kind of editing with Cressida, but it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting how lockdown affected it. So when does the film get locked and then what's the rollout plan after that? You can mess around with this stuff forever. I'm not like that. There, there are people I know who, who will spend a lot of time fretting and I'm not like that at all. I'm a 100% intuitive person. And for better or worse, I have a lot of um, self-confidence in my, in my filmmaking. I kind of, I mean, it's almost arrogance, you know, like, I mean, like I said, I was upset with the response to Elstree 1976, but part of me was also, I mean, literally when people were going on, on Twitter and tagging me on Elstree 1976 saying, this film's no good, I was tagging them back saying, you don't know how to watch films. You're a fucking idiot. You know, like, actually, it's a really good film. You're a fucking idiot. Maybe think of it from that point of view. Maybe go out and watch some fucking documentaries. Maybe watch something that's not Star Wars and you won't be such a moron. For all of my, my emotional side, I have a very healthy dose of arrogance. And, and 
or not I'm arrogant is the wrong word, but I am self-confident and have self-belief in these ways. And when I edit, I'm completely intuitive. And for some reason, I know a lot of people, it's the same with writing, people see the blank page or the blank timeline and they think about everything the film could possibly be. But to me, the film um, actually edits itself. I, I always see, I think to be a creative person, you're not original. There's very little originality in, in this world and creative things, very little. But what you actually are is you're a filter and all the things that you've experienced, all the things that you've seen and all of the, the things that have, that have kind of influenced you and, and all of these things create this unique filter, which if you are prepared to pass something through that filter, it'll kind of go through your head and come out your fingers. Your your brain or your intuition knows kind of what to do. And actually editing has never been difficult for me. As soon as I start playing around on the timeline, I just go, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. And the film always presents itself to me. And you, you sometimes hear like songwriters talking about songs dropping into their head fully formed. And the reason that happens is because they understand songwriting and because they are a filter for an idea. And if a, if a three note riff drops into their head, everything that's, that they've experienced in their lives will process, it'll be processed through all of that and it'll come out through their fingers on a guitar. And that's how I feel about making films. I always feel that the film will present itself to me and it always does. It, it never feels like, um, work in that way. We locked edit and Hank was happy with it. Which is very important. Like if we're if we're at a point where both of us are happy with it, then we know it's done, and that's just kind of it. We logged at it, and then it went very quickly to Film Shed to do all the post production. They did all of the post production kind of in house there. The sound went to Intricate Sound, Ben Carr Intricate Sound, and we worked with those people over over Zoom, which was very strange. And something they were brilliant, by the way. I mean, they're amazing, but as a process, I hated it because. Honestly, like when you're approving color grades and stuff, you need to be sat in a, in a, in a theater with it looking as good as it could. So I just, I knew they were good. So, you know, it was kind of, I felt kind of stupid signing off on stuff because I was, I was like, oh, no, you know, this is my monitor. I don't know if it's calibrated properly, whatever. And the same with sound. I was like, I don't know if my sound is properly calibrated, but I know that you are really good at your job. And I know that you are not going to let something out of the door unless you are 100% happy with it. So once that was done, it was just basically done. And at that point, it goes to the sales agents. You hope you're going to get a sales agent. And luckily, we did. as I said, our last sales agent uh, went bankrupt <laughs> a long time ago. So um, it goes to the sales agent, and then you just wait it's a really weird process because the sales agent's job is to literally just to sell it. You don't know who's going to buy it. You don't know what they're going to do with it. And their job is to bring as much money in as possible and not necessarily to be concerned with what's going to happen to it. They, 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 they care about the money coming in. So we had some interesting things with Elstree in 1976, which still upset me to this day, such as, you know, there was one country who bought it and then released it immediately on DVD before it had even been released theatrically anywhere else. And it was kind of like, oh, shit. Like, you know, this film's going to get out. There was another country. I mean, the problem with us from 1976 was that all these companies were buying it on the basis that it had Star Wars on so it could sell. It was a built-in audience. And they weren't putting money into it. They weren't marketing it or doing anything with it. So it didn't necessarily really get out there. And um, certainly there was one country where when we got our first report back from them, and it said in the marketing budget zero. And I was like, they didn't even put a Facebook ad up. They didn't put a hundred on the week it opened. They didn't put 150 quid in saying, 
just throw some money at Facebook and let's hope it does say nothing. They didn't print a single poster, nothing. So it's upsetting kind of with that. The American distributors were amazing. We have film rights for Alstra 1976 and, and they got a Netflix deal on that, which, you know, which is why people know about the film because it got onto Netflix and, and people saw it on Netflix and it got to a wide audience. So again, with this one, you're at people's mercy. You don't know who's going to buy it. You don't know what they're going to do with it. And, you know, candidly at this point, we've sold all the rights to America, but the company who bought them, we, we have no, they've not been in touch with us. We have no idea kind of what the plan is at all. And in this country, it was an interesting sale because it went to BritBox, which is a kind of streaming. They were made by the BBC and ITV coming together to put a place where all of their kind of stuff would be online. And they're trying this kind of bold new tactic to reach out to people, which is that they're actually starting to make their own original content. And we're basically the first original piece of content that they bought. And their support has been incredible. It's been really kind of great seeing it actually, you know, I think it went online on Thursday and last week, seeing actual press for it and seeing how much they were pushing it. I signed up for it. You know, they, they do a free kind of first week trial. And I thought I'll sign up and see what they do. And as soon as I signed up, all dogs was all over the front page of it. So they've been really fantastic. And, but, you know, we're living in a different age now. Like the dream for, for most filmmakers of kind of my age and my generation is that you want to do film festivals for six months. Then you want to get a really great theatrical release with some money behind it. And then you want it to go onto blue. Well, people like me still want Blu-ray and physical media. And then you want it to go onto Netflix or Amazon Prime to kind of be a great streaming thing. And uh, the truth is that everything has kind of splintered a lot now and it's quite hard for smaller films. It's very easy to disappear down the cracks. And, and even now, we might be in a position with Bulldogs where we sell it really well and it makes a lot of people a lot of money, but it still actually doesn't really get out there because maybe it's not on Netflix or Prime, which are the two big ones, or, you know, you, you, you never know where it's going to go. You have to kind of put that to a side, really, and just kind of go, I enjoy making these films and, and I never kind of, you know, I have no ambition to be famous. I've got friends who have been famous and I don't like to look at that one bit. <laughs> you know, I really don't. I don't, I wouldn't ever want that kind of attention. And to a degree, I don't even want my films to be scrutinized that heavily. So in a way, right now, everything is great because, you know, I'm finally at a point in my career where I can make a modest living making the films that I really want to make. And the way that me and Hank now have built our career we launch the projects ourselves. You know, we pay for the shoots ourselves, which means that we don't ever have to go cap in hand to people and pitch it and kind of and kind of have them say, you know, wouldn't this be better as a 50 minute or could you do this or could you do that and have other people's hands on it before the creative process has even begun. And I just feel like I'm in such a privileged position now. Like I, I really, I love it. I, I really am happy that right now I can pay the mortgage and I can afford to keep my daughter in clothes and in nurseries. But I can also genuinely now make the films that I care about making. And, you know, I really hope that people see those films. But at the end of the day, you know, if they don't, I still have the experience of making them. And, and it's, it's, it's right now, it feels like a, a really nice place to be. When we talked via email, you said that you were going to come to the States next week. Is that for business or for pleasure? That is for pleasure. That's my, my wife is from Texas. So... It'll be the first time in two years that we've managed to get back to Texas to see the family. You know, last time we were out there with my daughter was six months. So, you know, it's, it's big for us to kind of get back there. And also we're going to go to, we're going to go to the Drew Struzan Gallery in, 
in, in Dallas. So I'm really excited about that. But the next film actually is, is going to be set in America. The next film is, is, um, it will require me to kind of come to the States and to, to do some interviewing in the States. I'm really excited about that. You know, that's another one, which is, you know, a project that I've had, I've wanted to make for, for, for kind of quite a few years. And I'm at a position now where, where actually it looks like we're going to be able to get it funded. Even if not, I'll fund it myself. Me and Hank will fund it and we'll, we'll, uh, get it to a point where you can show people and they'll go, Oh yeah, actually it's quite good. And hopefully it'll get out there. But yeah, it's nice. <laughs> can I ask what it's about? What I can say is, is that this will be the first one, which isn't about film specifically. It is kind of about pop culture, but it's, I've basically found this very interesting human being and we have now secured his life. Like he signed the contract. So we've got his life rights. So we can actually make this film now. He's someone who was very ahead of his time. I did something very fascinating in 1983 in America, which I don't think many people would have heard about, but I think it gives, it throws where society is right now globally into a very interesting kind of focus. That's about as much I can say, but I will say that if you like pop culture kind of stuff, I think you'll really enjoy it and it's going to be, and it's wacky and it's fun. So it'll be good. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work? I've got a website, uh, which is John Spira, J O N S P I R A dot co dot UK. That's actually, I've got all of my BFI documentaries up there. You can watch all of the, well, most of those, you know, all the stuff I've done, all the music videos and trailers for all the feature films and stuff. I also write books about film. So there's a bunch of, bunch of those which you can get through, through the shop on there. I've written the definitive book about the UK video shop industry called Video Syncretic. This year I published, um, the long lost autobiography of Georges Méliès. They, that was a project which while my, while my daughter was kind of young, which I was really doing as well, was that I'd found out that Méliès had written essentially an autobiography and no one knew about it. It had been out of print. It had only been in print once in the 1930s or 40s on a, in a limited edition book in France. It had never been translated into English. I just couldn't believe it. So I did a Kickstarter campaign and got fully funded. And now we've made this book called The Long Lost Autobiography of Georges Méliès, which you can buy from georgesméliès.co.uk. Again, I self-released it completely. And that was so much fun to, to, I mean, the, the, the translation of his autobiography is in the book, is part of the book, and that's fully annotated. And then I wrote some kind of companion pieces to it and some other stuff of his writing that I found and did some interviews. I interviewed Michel Gondry, there's a little interview with him in the back about Melies. And, and, you know, if you love science fiction and filmmaking in general, Melies is, is ground zero. He was the first guy to do creative filmmaking at all having his testament, finding his words was unbelievable. And I actually found a, a copy of the original manuscripts, like how he, he wrote it longhand. And there's, there's a special edition that I sell through the website where you can get a replica of full 36 page manuscripts, handwritten by Melias, like in his hand with all his corrections and stuff. It's, it's crazy. And so, so, you know, as a film, that project was just, so much fun and so again gratifying to put that into the world to have that to know that people now know this document exists and can read his own words and it's crazy because he was crazy so yeah that's 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 all on the website as well so yeah well john spyro thank you so much for your time this has been a true pleasure thank you mike this has been amazing i, I love your podcast so much i'm so flattered to, to be invited <laughs>